what's the best meal that you have ever had? Maybe you think of Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner, perhaps a special birthday occasion. For me, one meal in particular stands out above all the rest. In 2018, I ate a few times at an establishment called Jeff Ruby's in Louisville, Kentucky. And let me tell you, it's a fantastic experience every time you go. If you're ever in Louisville, you have to eat at Jeff Ruby's. And you could follow my, my pattern if you would like. Right? We, we started with some sushi. We moved on. We had some, some wine and some dry-aged filet mignon along with some mac and cheese and, and Brussels sprouts. Yes, even Brussels sprouts taste good at this place. It's incredible. Truly a marvel. Eventually, we finished our meal with a sundae and, of course, some creme brulee. Who doesn't love when they, they bring that flamethrower thing out to the table and they caramelize that sugar on top of it? You, know, you feel really cool at the table. Like, yeah, that's coming to me. It was delicious. I remember sitting back and thinking, I am never eating again. And yet, this weird thing happened the next day. I became hungry again. The food was only temporarily satisfying. We turn to John chapter 6 today and another sign of Jesus. And what John wants us to learn from this particular sign is that Jesus is all-satisfying. It's that those who come to Jesus will never hunger again. Those who believe in Jesus will have their thirst eternally slaked. The main idea of the whole chapter, and I think of these first 15 verses, is that Jesus is the bread of life. And therefore, the exhortation this morning is that, that you and I would feast upon Christ. Eating in this chapter is equivalent to believing. Jesus, as he so often does in this gospel, uses physical realities to teach us about spiritual ones. You can see your outline there before you. We'll talk about the miracle, the message, and then the murmuring of the people. Let's pray and we'll begin together this morning. Father, we come before you as a people amazed that we have the privilege of coming before you. We have the amazing privilege of calling you Father, of knowing you as our Lord and our God. We have done nothing, nothing to deserve this wonderful gift. 
It has been given to us by Your kind hand. You have adopted us. Not because of something in us, but because You are good. You saw us hungry, thirsty, ignorant, dead. You called us to life. Gave us the knowledge of the Spirit. It filled our bellies. Lord, You are so good. We come this morning asking that You would feed us with the bread of life once more. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at verse 1 of John, chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, Where will we get, where will we buy bread? so that these people can eat. He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. And so we pick up the story of Jesus. He's gone across the Sea of Galilee, which is more like a lake. He's with his disciples in somewhat of a remote area. And people have heard about the signs he's doing, heard about his healing, and so they are following him quite naturally. And so as he and his disciples are sitting there, he looks out, he sees the crowds coming towards them, and he diagnoses what's going to be a problem. These people... They're going to need to eat. And so Philip's from the region, and, and Jesus kind of slyly turns to him and says, Philip, you know where all the, the Costco's and the Kroger's are. Where are we going to get bread to feed all of these people? And he asks Philip this to test him. I think the natural question is, test him how? Test him for What? What is the, the test? Jesus is, is, is probing Philip to see if Philip has eyes to see. Jesus has, has been doing this, remember. He's often operating on this spiritual level while everybody else is seeing with earthly eyes and nothing more. Remember, at the Passover, the first Passover in John, he says, destroy the temple and I will build it up in three days. He's talking about his body. They assume he's talking about the building. He tells Nicodemus, truly I say to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus tries to puzzle together how he can enter into his mother's womb and be born again. He tells the woman at the well, I can give you living water. And she says, how? Where's your bucket? He tells the disciples, I have food you don't know about. And they start whispering to one another, where did he get this food? Who brought him food? He says to the paralytic man by the pool, Bethesda, 
do you want to get well? And the man begins going on about how he can't get into the bubbling water in time enough to be healed. So too, the question comes to Philip. How will we feed these people? How will we satisfy them? Does Philip have eyes to see? No. Philip immediately, he gets out his laptop, he opens up Microsoft Excel, and he starts doing his calculations. And eventually he comes back to Jesus, he takes his glasses off, and he says, we just can't make this work. Eight months' wages would not be enough for even all of these people to have just a little bit. Can't do it. I mean, even to give a single potato chip to all of these thousands would prove a near impossible task. That's how Philip responds, rather than with what we might expect, like a a Peter-like confession, right? You you remember uh, Jesus says, who do you guys say I am? Peter says, "You're, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you get, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This hasn't been revealed to you by the flesh, but by God himself. We might expect or hope that Philip would just come back and say, Lord, you know where we can get food. You are the creator and the redeemer of everything. You can turn these stones to bread and the streams to wine. I've been around you enough to know that this is a problem that you can solve. No, he doesn't have eyes to see just yet. And neither does Andrew. Andrew rolls up in verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? So so Andrew enters the picture and he says, "That's, That's true, Philip, but hey, at least we have this child's Lunchables. Right? We got got some barley biscuits and some fish relish. That's that's better than nothing, but not going to go very far. Now, what's been made of this this boy? Heard heard many sermons centered on him, and and I think that's inappropriate. But I do think that the application that often accompanies those kinds of sermons is legitimate. It is appropriate. See, the boy has very, very little. And whether the disciples force it out of his hands and just take it from him, like, hey, that kid has a lunch, we're just going to take it and use it. This is what we've got, Jesus. Or whether the child gives it, which I think is the more likely scenario. What happens is that Jesus uses this measly, this minuscule, this tiny little amount of bread and fish to do something spectacular. Applications easy to see. Whatever Jesus touches turns to gold. Jesus can take your measly gifts, your tiny amount of resources, He can take anything that you offer to Him and use it to bring Himself glory. He takes some barley biscuits and some fish relish from 
a poor boy. People didn't typically eat barley bread. It was gross. That was reserved for like the animals, okay? And so this, these barley biscuits tell us about the economic status of this kid. He, he takes this tiny lunch, this, this biscuit and this fish, I guess fishes, plural, biscuits and fish, and he performs what is his most famous miracle. It's the only one that's recorded for us in all four Gospels. Jesus can use a no-name little boy's lunchable to bring himself glory. And he can use no-name men, women, and children to bring himself glory. He can use no-name churches to bring himself glory. Glory. The question is, will we, will you come to Jesus and give him all that you have? Jesus performs a spectacular miracle with next to nothing in terms of resources. In fact, Andrew and Philip think he probably can't do much in this situation, right? We don't have enough money to buy for all these people. We've got a couple biscuits and some relish. You can hear almost some sarcasm, right? We'll feed a thousand people with these, this barley biscuit and these fish. And then Jesus responds, have the people sit down. I mean, their eyes must have got wide, Right? They say, we we couldn't possibly feed all these thousands of people. And Jesus says, watch this. Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign, they said, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I'm really interested in the mechanics of this particular miracle. Did, was it just, you know, you're passing the biscuits along and it gets down to, to a tiny little crumb and then like it gets to the next row and just whoosh, balloons up again and then everybody takes a piece or... Or does it just never change the size? How, or is Jesus just touching this and it multiplies into thousands? I don't, don't know how, how it works, but, but it must have been wondrous. It's wondrous enough for the people to recognize that Jesus is the prophet who is to come. It's enough to prompt them to have the desire to make him their king. And Jesus responds kind of oddly to this. He understands they want to make him king. And so, he withdraws by himself. So I was thinking about this. I went, this is not 
probably how I would react. I don't know if it's how you would react. I don't know if many of us would react to a, a group of people coming around us and saying, we think you have all the answers. We want to do exactly what you say. We will follow you. We want to make you king. We want to, we want to make you queen. I don't know that many of us would go, I need to get by myself and make sure this doesn't happen. You're more prone to say, well, okay, I'll be king. That's not what Jesus does. You go, well, why? It's because they have a, a misunderstanding about what kind of king Jesus is. They're right to recognize him as the prophet spoken of by Moses in Deuteronomy 18. Moses tells them, a prophet like me will arise among you. Do what he says. Yeah, yeah, Jesus is that prophet. And therefore, they want to make him king. They have visions of conquering Rome. That's why this note about only the men being numbered here, the men numbered about 5,000. Some estimates have this up at twenty or 30,000 people. We don't know. The reason that 5,000 men is underscored for us is military reason. If they make Jesus king and he goes to overthrow Rome, 5,000 men at his back is, well, it's a formidable force. If he were begin to begin an insurrection against their oppressors. But that's, that's not what he's come to do. He's, he's come more to be more than just an earthly king. He's come as the king of kings. His crowning, his coronation, will only come at his crucifixion. He comes not to rule immediately, Not to just free the Jews from Rome. But to save the world. He comes to lay down his life as a ransom for many. He's, he's not the kind of king that they expect. But he is indeed a prophet. They, they are right to understand him as the prophet that is to come, if, if you look at a lot of what John is doing in this chapter, is he is wanting us to see Jesus as a new and better Moses. Right, that's one of the things that's going on here. If you look in verse 4, it's of now the Passover festival. Right, it's the second Passover in John. Passover is near. It doesn't move the story along at all. Why, why this detail? Well, because it's going to help give us context to the miracle that Jesus is about to perform. It's going to help teach us who we are to understand Jesus to be. Passover celebrates the Exodus events. God's people come out of slavery and into sonship. God redeems his people. Moses in the wilderness provides manna, bread from heaven. And when we get to the the fifth sign, next week, this will become apparent. Right? During the Passover, the people cross through the Red Sea. And here we have Jesus. Well, he's multiplying loaves of bread. 
providing for the people. He indeed can provide for Israel. That's why there's 12 baskets left over. 12 tribes, 12 baskets. Jesus is able to provide for all of God's people. This is why Jesus will walk on water. Indeed, he has power over the seas. We're to see in John 6 a new kind of exodus taking place. Jesus is indeed this prophet foretold by Moses. He's better than Moses. And he's better than all the prophets that came before him. We typically don't know our Bibles as well as those Jews in the first century. But most assuredly, they knew a story very similar to this one. Let me, let me tell you, it's only a couple of verses. Let me just read it to you. It's a miracle of Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4. This is how it reads. A man from Baal Shalisha came to the man of God with his sack full of 20 loaves of barley bread from the first bread of the harvest. Elisha said, Give it to the people to eat. But Elisha's attendant asked, What? Am I to set all of this before a hundred men? Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. For this is what the Lord says. They will eat, and they will have some left over. So he said it before them. And as the Lord had promised, they ate and had some left over. Sounds really familiar, doesn't it? even down to the barley bread. And so we're to make this connection between Jesus and Moses, between Jesus and the prophet Elisha, and we we are to draw some conclusions from that. I think the, the first conclusion is that Jesus is greater than Moses or Elisha. Jesus is the prophet. He is leading a new exodus. And he is able to provide more than enough for all of God's people. I mean, just look, if you compare Elisha's miracle to Jesus' miracle. Elisha's like, all right, we got, we got 20 loaves of bread here and 100 people. Miracle, we fed them all. Jesus has five biscuits and some fish and feeds 5,000 plus. It's lavish. It's in excess. Jesus is this much greater, this much more powerful than anyone who has come before him. He's able to meet the needs of all who come to him. He can give his people more than enough. Do you believe that? I think it's so easy when we go through difficulties in life, whether physical, financial, or spiritual, to go, God, why haven't you given me what I need? It doesn't feel like you're providing. If we're clinging to the truths of the Scripture, we know that He always gives us exactly what we need. And he's a good father. And he provides us with more than enough. Oh, but it is so hard to believe that in the midst of difficulty. Friends, do not forget this truth. 
that Jesus gives more than enough. He will give you all that you need until your dying day. And then He will raise you up and continue to give you more. He provides them with more than enough. The second thing we are to realize here, and Jesus is going to tell us about this himself throughout the rest of the chapter, is that Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the bread sent by God. We'll see he he walks on water. They try to make him king. He walks across the water with the disciples. They cross over the other side of the sea. Uh, The people realize, they look around like, hey, Jesus is gone. Let's find that guy that made the bread. They, They find him, and Jesus says, they say, hey, when did you get here? He doesn't answer their question. He comes back to them and says, the reason that you came looking for me is because your bellies were full, not because you believe in me. He recognizes their kind of faulty faith. He tells them, uh, you need to believe in me. Don't just look at the loaves. Don't just look at the miracle. But trust in the message. Trust in who I am. They respond, well, verse 30, What sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you? Right? He just did this, this miracle, feeding the 5,000. They don't want to believe. What sign are you going to do so that we may believe you? What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so they're they're getting real spiritual on him now. What sign will you give us? Our ancestors, they got a sign. They got manna from heaven. What sign are you going to give us so that we may see and believe? And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So there's two corrections that are going to come. Here's correction number one. You've got the source of the gift wrong. Moses didn't give you that. My father gave your ancestors the bread from heaven. It's correction number one. Verse 33. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. All right, so Jesus is, he's talking up here, he's talking on the spiritual level, and they are just, it's over their head. They're not getting it. They're still on this merely physical level, right? Sounds really similar to the woman at the well. Where's your bucket? Oh, give us this bread so we can eat it. Jesus responds, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one comes to me, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. And so here's the the second correction. Jesus says, the manna that was given at the time of Moses was given by my father, and it looked forward to me. I am the bread from heaven. I 
am the bread of life. I think we often think of prophecy in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the prophet says this is going to happen, and then it happens. But the Bible often uses pictures and types in order to show us the future. And Jesus is indicating here that the manna that that came from heaven that sustained Israel in the wilderness not only functioned in that way, but also pointed the way to him. He is the true bread that comes down from heaven. He doesn't satisfy for merely a day or a few hours. He satisfies forever. doubles down on this after they continue to not get it in verse 47. Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is is pushing on this metaphor, and he's making it clear. He's saying, I'm the bread of life, and when I say I'm the bread of life, I'm saying that I'm going to give myself in death so that you can live. love how... Carson helps us to understand this point. He he says, the point is this. In an agrarian world, everyone knows that for you to eat, something else has to die. If you go and eat a hamburger, a cow has died, and some grain stalks have died. The only thing that you ingest that has not died is the occasional mineral, a bit of salt now and then. Everything else you eat means something else has died. If it doesn't die, you die. It's either your life or the food's life. That's understood when you live on a farm. That's a little harder when you take things out of cellophane. So you see, Jesus is pushing the metaphor as he does elsewhere in John's Gospel. In chapter 10, Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. In chapter 12, he's the corn of wheat that falls to the ground and dies. In chapter 11, he is the one who dies so that the nation may live. And so here he gives his flesh for the life of the world. This is the gospel. Jesus dies in the place of sinners. Jesus dies so that sinners who who come to him in faith and repentance can live. The way that we eat this bread of life, the way that we take his death so that we can have life, is by putting our faith in him. Jesus gives his life so that anyone who comes to him in repentance and faith can live 
forever. He dies for our sins so that we might enjoy His blessing. He's the bread of life. This leads to the murmuring of the people. They do not like that Jesus is not the kind of king that they would want. They do not like his teaching. We see this in a number of places throughout the text. You see it in verse 41. Therefore, the Jews started complaining about him, grumbling, because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? In verse 52. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man, the son of Mary and Joseph, give us his flesh to eat? It's the sound just like Israel in the wilderness. We're making these Exodus connections again. The people look at God doing these miraculous things and they complain and they grumble. And we have to admit, Jesus sounds, I mean, if he's not who he says he is, he sounds a little crazy here, a little belligerent. I mean, listen to him go on. They say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus goes on in verse 53. Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. He's really pushing this metaphor. Especially, we studied Leviticus, so we know some things about blood, right? The life of a creature is in the blood, and the blood belongs to God. Good Jewish people, we're not supposed to to drink the blood. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna that your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus is not calling them to cannibalism. And he's not actually teaching about the Lord's Supper. He's calling them to put their faith in him. Eating in this chapter is believing in Jesus. He's saying, put your faith in me. Eat the bread of life. It's me. And they Well, they respond like we might have. Verse 60. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? I wonder what teaching of Scripture do you respond to like that? Is it the Bible's teaching on sex and gender? On the exclusivity of salvation through Christ alone? It's teaching 
on the reality of eternal judgment in hell. What teaching of Jesus makes you murmur and grumble? Teaching on hospitality or evangelism or considering the interests of others ahead of your own? Teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were complaining about this, asked them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some among you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. How, how does this group of, air quotes, disciples move from wanting to turn Jesus into their king to turning away from him entirely? Well, he refused to bow to their rule. Jesus is not a puppet king. He doesn't shape his will according to the will of the mob. He doesn't conform himself to unbelieving hearts. And instead, he commands those who would follow him to believe in him, to obey him. I mean, isn't this what happens today, right? Every, everyone wants to co-opt Jesus for his or her pet cause. Right, they want to shape Jesus in their own image. Put Jesus on their team. But Jesus, he doesn't hitch his wagon to our favorite causes. I mean, people get really, really excited about the Jesus they want. Really excited about the Jesus that they imagine. The Jesus who looks and thinks just like them. Maybe it's Morally exemplary Jesus, or socialist Jesus, or capitalist Jesus, or anti-Semitic Jesus, or white racist Jesus, or revolutionary liberationist Jesus, or countercultural cool Jesus. But it, at the end of the day, is not the whole Jesus who offends who bends his will to no one, who stands as a bulwark, a solid rock unmoved by cultural winds, uneroded by cultural waves. At the end of the day, Jesus is the king who obeys his Father's will perfectly. Jesus 
the one who gives his life as a ransom for sinners. If your enthusiasm for Jesus is for a Jesus that doesn't exist, your enthusiasm is no honor to the real Jesus. And the real Jesus will go away from you to the mountain. What happens in this text is what happens when our caricatures of Jesus bump up against the real Jesus. So something has to give. We have to, at the end of the day, submit to the real Jesus' commands and kingship or we can get offended and go away. Maybe even holding on to our imaginary Jesus. But your imaginary Jesus is nothing more than a mascot. And he cannot save. The real Jesus is master. He is Lord and Savior. He doesn't outsource his authority. So the question at the end of this chapter comes to us. What will we do with the real Jesus? What will you do when the Word of God offends you by contradicting what you think? Will you believe? Or will you turn away? The truth is, if Jesus cannot contradict the way you think, He is not your God. You are. From that moment, many of His disciples turned back no longer walked with Him. Jesus is speaking words of life here. They're words that can only be understood by those who have the Spirit of God. His words will only be understood and responded to by those whom the Father draws. Do you see this in verse, he says it in verse 65. This is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And in verse 44, 43, Jesus answered them, Stop complaining among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And there in verse 36, But as I told you, You've seen me and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should not lose one of those that he has given to me but should raise them up on the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. So who is it that comes to Jesus? Everyone the Father gives to Him. Those the Father draws. Who is it that Jesus will keep to Himself and never cast out? Those who are given by the Father. Who is it that Jesus will raise up on the last day? Everyone who comes to Him and believes will have eternal life and be raised up on the last day. It's important. Two important things to meditate on from this text. First, your salvation, anyone's salvation, is entirely the work of God. You don't get to take credit for any of it. You don't believe in God because you're really smart and you figured it all out. You came to faith all on your own. And so you, you, you can't boast in that. No, that it, it's the result of the work of God. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. We are dead in our sins. Dead people don't do anything. That is until God calls them to life. So the first truth I think we ought to meditate deeply on is that salvation is a gift from God. And if you can get your mind around this wonderful truth, it will revolutionize how you understand the goodness of God. It will revolutionize your understanding of God's grace. No one comes unless the Father draws him. And everyone who comes to the Father will never be, or comes to Jesus, will never be cast out. The second thing to meditate on is that everyone who believes will be raised up on the last day. Therefore, you should believe. You should put your faith in Christ. The question is, do you have eyes to see him for who he is? Will you respond to Jesus as the crowd, those who go away, or as Peter? Verse 66 again. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the twelve, You don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. 
Peter says, you're the bread of life and we are here to eat. Friends, Jesus is the bread of life. Feast upon him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all the textures of Scripture. We thank you for revealing yourself to us in this book. We thank you for revealing yourself perfectly in Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you for satisfying our deepest spiritual needs when we come to Christ and put our faith in Him. Father, we thank you for drawing us to the Lord Jesus so that we might be saved. Indeed, Lord, the flesh doesn't help at all. It is the Spirit who gives life. We pray that you would fill us with your Spirit this morning, that you would enliven us, that you would fill up our bellies once more with Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.